Hey, welcome to another podcast here on Direct Motocross. This is Billy Rainford, hunkered down in uh, isolation up here on Lake, up on the lake, uh, just trying to get through, get through this coronavirus stuff. But uh, yeah, so we've got uh, someone here who um, has been there, done that. That's for sure. He checks both boxes. Uh, it's interesting to always kind of talk with some racers, industry folk, and uh, this guy again is uh, is both of those. So let's. Uh, I've got Brett Lee on the phone here. Brett, how you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, well, I mean, I'm like everyone else, getting a little anxious to get outside, and I'm um, ready, ready to do some different things. <laughs> Are you sick of uh, Groundhog Day? You know what? At first, it's one of those things. Like at first, you're kind of like, "This is great, right?" Because you're kind of ticking some things off. And now I'm like, I'm kind of getting towards the end of that. And uh, I just had to talk with uh, my wife Melody about like we just it's it's creating like some kind of routine that you get used to each day, right? Like, it's so weird not not knowing what's going on and what the plan is and all these sort of things. So we're uh, we're, we're like everyone else. It's like a struggle to sort of pick up what that routine's got to be, but uh, that's what we're kind of working on around here. And so it doesn't feel the same every day. Yeah, I know it's crazy. I mean, like a lot of people joke that they, uh, if you clean things too fast, you're going to run out of stuff to do. I, I've been getting out um on my bicycle up here a lot and uh, I went by a house and it was you have never seen a cleaner yard property house and the lady literally walked out of her house picked up one leaf from her driveway and I said you have completely run out of things to do haven't you and she's like yep <laughs> yeah yeah she probably had a list and that leaf was on it it's, it's <laughs> different too like people like because of who we are uh, we get lots of awesome messages through our social media or just emails from friends. It's no different than anyone else, I'm sure. But lots of people are like, ah, oh, this would be a great time to rebuild the track or, you know, do these sort of things because the weather's been really great. And I know, like, other tracks are getting the same kind of message. And the, the sort of the kicker on all this is, like, we don't know when we're going to open up. So we can't go and, you know, like... You may need that money you spent on these things to like have groceries and all that because we're really like, like motocross, uh, tourism, any of that sort of stuff is really just sitting. And I don't even want to use the word idling. It's just dead, dead engine sitting there floating, right? And you don't know when, when you're going to be allowed to go again. So it's really, there's, there's probably a few more things I could do, but I just, I don't know what the plan is, right? Don't, so don't go burn diesel fuel now. Yeah, well, I mean, really, like, or rent equipment or, or any sort of, or, you know, buy, purchase things. You're like, you just don't know how to sort of move forward as a business, right? So it's interesting. Right. So I guess I should point out, too, in case you've been uh, living under a rock, this is Brett Lee uh, of the Lee family of Walton Raceway in Walton, Ontario, Canada. So if you're listening to this, this is, uh, he, they do run the TransCan, the annual GNC race up in Walton. So uh, that's who we're talking with. He was also a pro racer, uh, gave a finger, gave a fingertip in the, to the cause. <laughs> that was, that was working to make a, make money to buy a motorcycle. But yeah, I did lose a finger along the road too. So there's been lots of stuff, I guess, in my past, but right now, uh, doesn't seem, I could, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, okay, Brett, well, let's, um, let's back it way up. How old are you now, by the way? Are you, are you at the age where you'll tell us? Uh, yeah, I'm, I am, I'm, uh, 40, 45 this year. Yeah. You're, you're only 45. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's my joke. That's my age joke. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well, <laughs> it made me feel good if that helps. So yeah, so that's, that's me. I've been doing this, uh, quite a few years. I, 
I kind of got a funny start to it. I, I started uh, racing, uh, like everyone else did lots of riding. Actually, the reason we do the Transcan is because we went to Loretta's one year, did really well there, and uh, kind of brought the idea back home to Canada. Got that thing, uh, got Transcan going as a sort of, I always want to say it's like, um, just like a cousin of Loretta Lynn's. I mean, we always had a lot of respect for the Coombs family and how they did it, and they did it very similar. They just spotted something they wanted for their family and, and created an event, and we were inspired by what they did, and we brought it to Canada, and it's been cool. Davey's been up here a couple times, and um, so uh, we got, we kind of raced and, and ran that race and kind of became event producers. Uh, that's how I got into the sort of the gig of it, and um, did lots of things in between. Started up a motocross magazine with Pat Nickel a lot of years ago, MXU magazine, Motocross Unplugged, and sort of gradually ended up at uh, CMRC uh, doing stuff. After I'd raced, I kind of worked at CMRC and raced, raced at the same time, and the way I got into CMRC was I couldn't afford to go to the Nationals. I didn't have the money. I wasn't good enough to have really good sponsorships, so I agreed to drive the series rig, and they, I could take my bike, and I put up the banners on the Saturday and race them on the Sunday, and then took those banners down on the Sunday night, and that's how I got across the country to the Nationals, and that led to uh, working full time for CMRC, Mark Stallybrass, and you know I, I, I banged around there for about ten years. So finally, I, I decided I want to come home and be at home more and try and run run outdoor events, and uh, that's what kind of led me to where I am now. Okay, well, I guess you just answered everything. Thanks for the talk, Brett. Oh, we'll uh, talk to you later. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're going into a bit more detail here. We got lots of uh, lots of audio tape. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what, what was um. Well, no, I'm going to back it up here, buddy. I'm going to take it back. So, obviously, your your dad raced back in the day, right, Chris Lee? Yeah, yeah. So it was. So, a- yeah, so he raced uh, through the '70s on the on the farm, family farm we have here. There was a club here called Maitland Dirt Riders, and they held. Uh, they were called the Molson Cup Series back in the '70s, and they were fairly big races. I know a lot of guys out of the U.S. used to come up here, and uh, it's kind of a big deal to come up and ride the Molson Cup. It was good money, and. Uh, really super competitive series that they used to run here and they used to have a, that was around all of Ontario tracks but uh, they had rounds here and uh, so he raced that and he was I think kind of like me like you know on, on good days was a pretty good pro and uh, uh, he did that and, and sort of eventually got he, he left the sport probably around the 80s after he had kids and started a business and he kind of planted the whole track in trees. And if you come here to our track now, you'll know, like, it's kind of renowned now for all the trees around the track. There was no trees when we used to have the Molson series, and he planted all the trees. So mm-hmm. when my brother and I started to, we got rid of those trees. All right, okay. Now what, um, okay, I can ask my usual questions. Obviously, we know how yeah. you got into motocross. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty obvious. Yeah, dad and stuff, but- family thing that's passed down, right? And, I mean, going even further back, my grandfather, uh, who fought in the war, uh, was really into bikes and, and, and uh, he rode bikes in the army, and he, when he came to Canada, they had like Kodakas and stuff like that. And they just they just ripped around the farm, and nothing super competitive, but they they really enjoyed moto and uh, off road riding and and bikes. And uh, so that's it came from him down to my dad, who was a racer, passed down to my brother and I, who just literally started off just banging around the yard on on little uh, trail bikes, and and it just sort of evolved from there. Right, right now. Um. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna mention the brother and stuff, and that's how. Um, I mean, that's how 
dirt biking and motocross kind of used to start. I feel like that's changed. You know what I mean? Back in the day, kids, you know, families owned farms, just ripped around on a on an inexpensive dirt bike. I feel like that kind of yeah. uh, aspect of getting into the sport has maybe gone away a little bit. Uh, I agree 100%. I mean, um, it was always, uh, motocross was quite a bit different, I think, many years ago because the people didn't enter. It was typical for people not to start racing until they're maybe, you know, uh, 10, 11, 12 sort of thing. And, I mean, the point of entry into our sport is still in that 7 to 11 break bracket. But, I mean, you know, 50, 60, things like that are becoming more and more prevalent. And back in the day, I mean, most people just hammered around their backyard, put in tons of riding and stuff like that. And that has shrank a little bit because, one, there's a restriction on where we can ride bikes. Um, we just don't have the same kind of space to, to ride. Um, and, uh, you know, so we go out to tracks and stuff like that and um, I think we're always influenced by who we see and so we think we got to have more competitive bikes and and race more or become competitive in that and uh, so yeah I don't think there's as much like sort of that sort of like building your craft in your backyard sort of business as there used to be and uh, some of that's good and some of it's bad I mean I think it's great that we have great training facilities and people are getting good instruction at an early age I think that's awesome um but I also think there's something to be said about just learning to ride by riding. So uh, it, it has changed quite a bit. Some of it really is for the better, and some of it's uh, lost some of that sort of uh, organic start. Yeah, it seems like now to, to start, you load uh, five 50cc bikes in the back of your uh, stacker trailer and drive your motorhome down to Texas. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those really, like, the majority of people don't do that, right? Know, and the I'm majority kidding. of people are, I mean, Things that sell big now are still Honda CRS and Kawasaki uh, 110s. And there's still, like, I know for us here at Walton, we do a sports camp. And it's uh, kids who don't um, don't race, but they're in the sport, different kinds of sports and all that sort of stuff. So it's very far from motocross. But we do a couple of days of off-road. And so all these kids get to ride. And there's, uh, there's a lot of kids who have bikes that just rip around, uh, still do rip around. And... Um, uh, but I, I, going back to what you said before, like, where that sort of start was you ripped around your backyard and then you went to the, you know, mom and dad maybe made a number plate, put it on your front bike, on your bike and you went to the races. Now it's a little bit more intimidating to do that when you show up at a racetrack. If you show up at a local race here at Walton, you don't feel like you want to drop someone out in the 50 class on an XR50, right? Like you feel like you better have good gear and good equipment and maybe some training and all these sort of things. So it's a little bit more intimidating, I guess. Uh, where I think it is now, but uh, it's still got its classes and we still love it. Yeah, for sure. I, I want to just kind of circle back to something you mentioned earlier too, that uh, the Motocross Unplugged magazine. It's so funny that, I mean, people who just come around, a lot of us think we're coming up with new ideas and most of these ideas have been done before. I mean, you know, magazines have been tried before. Uh, live broadcasts have been tried before. Like all these things have yeah. been tried before and stuff. So it's just kind of, it's kind of funny to hear that. I bet a lot of people just heard that for the very first time that you were involved in a, in a publication. What, what, when are we talking here? Yeah. Oh, man. I, I can't even – I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but it'd be uh, in the uh, early 90s. So Pat Nichol, who's uh, – he, he came up with it. He wanted to do a full-color magazine, and uh, so we did. We produced a full-color magazine. At the same time – CMRC was producing um, CMRC Off-Road News, which is a magazine. It wasn't full-color, but it was the same thing. It was kind of like a newsletter. It morphed into becoming MXP Magazine, which everyone gets now, but where it originally started was like uh, Canadian Off-Road, right, or CMRC Off-Road Magazine. 
So Pat and I did this uh, magazine. It was the two of us, essentially, and uh, we did pretty much all the writing, designing, everything, and uh, did that through the little bit of the nineties. We had a website. We were pretty aggressive on it, and uh, yeah, Pat kind of took that, and he—I mean—he's branched off into so many different things now. I mean, after a while, we laid that magazine down. Just, I mean, it was it became a really competitive market. Uh, Inside Motorcycles has been around for a long time, and we just weren't that into it, and we were going different paths. So that the magazine eventually got laid down. But yeah, there's been a lot of things that people—I mean, there was a time I announced races. Um, I tried announcing races just over my cell phone, like just standing literally on the side <laughs> of the track, calling this the races. There was no intros. I know then you also, like uh, Direct Motocross, took it to another level where it was like a, almost like a show with, la- I remember the laptop and sitting up on high spots and some intros and sponsors and interviews and that was sort of, and those things have been going on for a long time. So um, it's kind of exciting, but motocross is always like that. I, I always say, um, in moto, one of the things, if you've been in moto long enough, you most people last in motocross about five or six years, like the typical racer. So every five or six years, you have people come into the sport and they're like, you should try this. Right? <laughs> and then, so there is some fresh ideas that do come along, but some of them, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of burden over the years that we've tried a lot of things and did it different ways. And, um, you know, here we are. Yeah. We're doing a podcast now. And yeah, the thing is, I mean, back in the day, we had all these ideas and we were just so, and we still are so limited by technology and cell service and stuff like that. It's just, uh, I always joke that I spent most of my time apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we're limited by budgets, right? I mean, at the end oh, of the yeah, day, Canadian motocross, one of the things it does is done always for a long, long time is present real well, right? Like we look like this sort of really, um, huge huge deal and it is like we are the top on Canadian motocross but at the end of the day it is a small industry and there's you know less than 10,000 people racing motocross in the country probably quite a bit less than that and you know these teams that are running present so well for like they make the most of the budgets I always think like if uh, GDR or Huber Kawasaki or, or Rockstar Yamaha had some of the budgets that US teams had like that would be a, like they would be they wouldn't know what to do with that much money, so to, so to speak, right? Like they do really well with what they got, and that goes for even pro riders in Canada who are working full time jobs. No one sees that, and then they're going to the races and they they put together their pits and their program to look really professional, right? And um, I just think it's kind of a credit to the Canadian motocross industry as a whole that we do we do a lot with little, and we make it look really good, and it's a great show. And uh, I mean. Part of the reason I'm always excited when the races come here. Right. Oh, hang on. Uh, my batch of newspapers just showed up. i got to go deliver papers after we're done here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is funny. I mean, if you, I mean, what other professional series would you look at outside the top seven? And most of these people are with other jobs, right? Go go look down south and see uh, see how far down the uh, overall results sheet you have to go to find some of the full-time jobs. It's, it's a little different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and nobody's retiring, right? And uh, but you you stay in it, and you if you do really well, if you're one of those people like at the very top and string a few championships together, you build yourself a great base for a great life, right? And even if you're not one of those people, you can create a good base for a lot of great networks and meeting a lot of people that can lead to some really great stuff down the road too. And I mean, that's what happened for myself, or for instance, Ryan Gold, who's 
sort of leveraged his racing and his contacts to build a career out of it. Even Justin Thompson, who runs the series, I mean, he was a good pro who did a really great job of leveraging contacts and, and then moving into a, and his next phase of his career. So, um, anyone you see that's, uh, maybe at the races, but not racing has probably, you know, done, gone down that path of really, you know, connecting with people and working hard and, and sort of taking advantage of the right opportunities. Yeah, for sure. Well, hey, you know, we also, we didn't, we didn't ask you, I haven't asked you yet, circling way back again is, uh, my favorite question. What was your, what did you pick for your first ever racing number? Uh, I think, uh, so 55 was always the number we had. And, uh, I was always the number I had on my bike is on 80s. And the, I do have a funny story around that is that when I moved up to, uh, moved up to the big bikes, uh, I had a 125, my dad had a 250. So my dad would put 55, I would always apply for the same number I had so I could ride his bikes and we wouldn't have to swap numbers around. <laughs> and as we, every year he would take that number from me. So I'd get assigned a different number. And so my first year as a junior, I was 55, but when I moved to intermediate, I had to become number 58 because he had taken 55 on me. <laughs> so, uh, and then he took 58 on me when, uh, after that. So, uh, it was like, I'm not sure how that worked, but someone at CMA, uh, was at that time giving the, uh, the senior statesman the, the number, but yeah. So 55 was always my number. And, uh, um, it's kind of like, I, I, if I was to look back at a number, that was that was it. I wrote that number the most out of all of them. Okay, and that was just a, a handed down number that your dad kind of wrote. wrote. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know how I. I honestly, I, I have no clue how I ended up with fifty five. It just is like one of those things. There's no special meaning to it. I never had any sort of personal attachment to any numbers. Like uh, I had a nine nine one when I was pro because that uh, was what I got from the states too when I rode, and and it was just my AMA number, and it was just easy, right? Um, so I never had a sort of like some kind of sentimental attachment to any numbers and, uh, it just was what was on my bike and that was fine by me too. See, that, that's funny. If you were 991, it goes in district 14 down there in the uh, AMA in yeah. Michigan. I, I was supposed to, I would have been 963. So that's how far after me you signed up. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I did not like the number 963. Although looking back, it might've been a pretty cool looking number. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all. Now, okay, yeah, so- it is all good. So back in the day, like who did you uh, who did you come up through the ranks? I mean, you made it all the way to the pro ranks. Who was uh, who was your competition back then? Uh, it, it was kind of like it, it moved around a lot. I mean, um, there's lots of guys I would chase, and I'm trying to think. Like there wasn't really. I don't really remember Terry Rockmeyer was always someone. So Terry Rockmeyer's family owned Rat Track. He was always. We were friends. We started racing at Holly Gully and House League together. House League at Holly Gully was like three or four kids. Um, would show up on a Saturday and Chuck Collins would let us lay the track out and it was like 10 bucks to the race. And it was literally the most grassroots racing going. And it was, I, I, looking back, it was awesome to go, be able to go do that. And Holly Gully was 20 minutes from us. And I met Terry Rockmeyer, uh, at House League and he was doing the same thing. So he was one of the three kids on the line on 80. And, uh, we went from there and basically went, uh, battled from junior, intermediate, Right into, uh, the pro ranks. We went to Loretta Lynn's together. Uh, we went across Canada, did nationals together, and we would always battle. And, uh, I mean, we had some huge collisions and crashes and, and all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. But, uh, to this day, I, Terry's still a friend and I see him. So I would look back at Terry as 
like the guy I used to chase. But I mean, I was racing at the time. There was uh, Ryan, obviously Ryan Gold, um, Marty Burr, Chris Lemon was like some of the guys that were just ahead of me, like in age, but they were always like the fast guys that would show up at a uh, provincial or something like that or a national. I beat Marty at a uh, at a provincial once and got second overall in a pro provincial back in the day. They were pretty competitive, and I always remember that was like something I was really proud of because he was national number four, and I caught him and passed him, and that that was like a cool feeling for me uh, as a rider. That year, he won the 125 national championships. So, uh, but those guys were faster than me, and that, I mean they were they were really fast riders. <laughs> and then so uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I kind of just had some good days and had some. Pretty wild ones too. Interesting. Yeah, I raced M- Marty Burr is younger than me, but I raced him on eighties. I remember. I remember getting yeah. in, in his way a couple times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually knocked Marty down. I did not knock him. Marty and I came together on the start at Alberton, and uh, he was going for a championship, and uh, it was not intentional. And I don't even think there will be people laughing saying, "Yeah, right, you're out of control." But I, I mm-hmm. honestly, it, it was bad. And anyways, we both picked ourselves up. He ended up having a really good moto. I had. An okay moto, but man, there was when I was sitting in my lawn chair after the race, and, and I'm like, my dad's like, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. Like he came down. But I was given this sort of the story from my point of view, and then I saw this redheaded, bullet wearing guy coming at me, and I'm like, oh my god! And Marty came over, and he was not thrilled with me, and we had <laughs> he had words with me, and I just sat there and took it because again, he was he was he was a pretty fast rider at the time, and. I just thought, ah, I'm just gonna just deal with what he has to say. So, yeah, I, I like I said, um, lots of guys like that, and uh, um, there was other guys that I should mention, like uh, Doug DeHaan and I were around the same age, and Doug was to me one of the most underrated pros in Canada. Blair Morgan rode with me a little bit up here and stuff like that, and those guys were just cool guys to hang out with. And around my age, John Sebastian, I spent lots of time hanging out with him. Uh, not so much when I was a kid, but older. Chris Pomeroy, like people to see palms now and he's such an easygoing guy but back in the day he was just the most intimidating rider to deal with that walton once at a provincial at walton i hole shot it and he screamed at me for an entire lap to get out of his way just <laughs> yelling at me to get out of his way and it it finally just made me freak out and i got out of his way well i was going to get out of his way anyways i was putting in one lap of glory he's way again he's a better faster rider than me but and I, I remember that day, just one corner into the race, he's yelling at me to get out of the way. <laughs> That's funny. It's amazing what we remember. It's, it's it's pretty funny how you can how these little things just bring back memories like that. It's 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 kind of rare actually. Now, okay, so um, what did you? What was your lowest number? What was your lowest pro number? Uh, they were only doing top ten. Oh, I so see. I never got a top ten. I banged around like right around that sort of top 10 area and the one year I was doing really well I ended up breaking my arm uh, I was track, setting up the track for Walt and I ended up breaking my arm with like two rounds to go and that that was my year I was as close as I ever got to having a top 10 number And uh, but yeah they only did top 10s and it was for, combined for two classes and stuff like that when I was right. racing right so yeah you had to hustle <laughs> you had to hustle to get a top 10 and ride both classes right so uh, there was one year was was close to the top 10 for me, but, uh, you know, I banged it. Like I said, I, I always was banging around that top 10 area was where I was at at nationals and, um, kind of fun. It was good. And I had some good rides. And like I said, uh, it was, I was never very consistent. So that was part of my problem. And, uh, 
Hey, were guys like uh, were the old schoolers like Ross or Al Dick or Harnden or any of those guys still around when you were racing? Uh, I was in intermediate uh, when Ross was finishing up his pro, and uh, yeah, Al Dick kind of would show up every now and then. But no, I mean, um, I took a year off, so I didn't really go pro to like almost '96 oh, okay. and stuff like that. So um, yeah, that was there was nothing really. Um, no, none of those were sort of old school, old school guys, and it was. It was kind of a weird time too, right? When CMRC and CMA were just in the final stages of that sort of those battles, TV wasn't quite going. There's just a lot of stuff going on like that, right? And so, um, uh, yeah, I, those are the main guys I battled though. And I'm not, I don't even want to say battle. Like I don't want to, but uh, those are the guys I was always racing against, and uh, it was fun. Right. Okay. What was your uh, What was your last pro race, and when was that? Uh, the last. Pro race was the last time I rode. Uh, just I rode a local pro. <laughs> it's the craziest story. It's why I walk with a limp now. Is that <laughs> we we had a um, it was ninety uh, two thousand six, and we uh, two thousand six we had a race here at Walton and I, uh, just a fall race. And I went out and I actually ended up getting. We had some fast guys here, like Chuck Nesley was here, and uh, Josh Schneider was riding nationals really well at the time. Like he's got a couple of top tens, and there was a, like probably 10 guys going pretty past the wall. And I showed up, I, w- I jumped out, I ended up getting third overall. And I wasn't going to race any, and I was like, oh, you know, like, I felt good, right? And so, naturally, not thinking uh, about things, uh, I went to um, went to RJ's the next weekend. And I, I was working, running the races, and I missed practice. So they stuck me out at the back of the junior mode to get a couple laps in. <laughs> And then I, I went out and said, okay, well, I'll just go easy off the, off the beginning and I will, um, just see how it goes. Anyways, I got third off the start. Mesley was in front of me and Kyle Stevens had just moved, was riding Pro-Am at the time, was out there with us. And I'm in behind those two and we went off a big double, came up to a big double I hadn't done. And I'm like, well, I'll just follow these guys off of this. It won't be a problem. And I, I cased it unbelievably hard and I thought I broke my, I didn't crash. I just thought I broke my arms. And I kind of just wobbled around and let everyone by. And I, after about 20 seconds, I'm like, oh, okay, I didn't break my arms, but I could feel my foot really going bad. And turned out I dislocated my ankle and sent my tail to the front of my foot. So that was, uh, that was the end of moto for me <laughs> right there. So I've rode a couple of times since then. And last year I went out and rode that front showed up and let me ride his bike around the track. And man, I always get the itch when I do that. So maybe someday again, plus 40. <laughs> okay, so then uh, you had, you were already kind of dabbling in the organization side of things, right? So then, then the full time you already kind of mentioned a little bit. You went with uh, you know the CMRC kind of stuff, and uh, let's. What I want to get to, obviously, we had to have some uh, some fun background talk. Is Transcan? I mean, we're heading into we got this craziness going on with the coronavirus. Uh, how are you on the conspiracy theories? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, you know what? Don't I don't open really Facebook. Have, pardon me. <laughs> Never open. Don't open Facebook. Holy smokes! Yeah, no. I, I mean, it is what it is. I don't know. I don't actually. Crazy it sounds. I don't pay. I always have conspiracy theories on something, but on this, I don't actually. So, uh, I'm just like, I want everyone to stay home, right? Like, I'm like, I am to the point where I just want to like every time I see someone like going, oh, I'm just hanging out with. A, my my son is even bad for this. Like, he, I'll go outside and I'm one of his buddies are here. I'm like, hey, 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 beat it, right? He's like, right, we're six feet apart. I'm like, just everyone stay home for a little bit because I am to the point, I want to open businesses, right? And I just, 
no real conspiracy theories, but I'm like, if it takes us out staying home for two weeks, let's just do it and get this over with. Right, right. Okay, so um, we kind of waited on this conversation. I mean, I spoke to you there last week or whatever it was, and we were kind of talking about some things, and I knew that we knew that the uh, Loretta Lynn's announcement was coming out, so Tim Carter went live and kind of did their broadcast on what uh, what their plans are. You know, they've outlined, you know, kind of the ABCD kind of thing. Uh, you guys running the biggest race in Canada, the TransCan, what, um, I mean, I guess we got to talk about it. What are we, uh, what are we thinking here? How are we going to, how's this going to yeah. play out? So we're playing it a little different here in Canada and it's frustrating for some people I know, but one of the things is, is the one thing they always remember is like, we're a month into this whole deal. I mean, about five weeks ago, uh, we were still, no one was, everyone was still like, is this real? Like kind of doing that, right? Like it feels like it's been forever, but we're only a month into this entire uh, uh, sort of shutdown. I think it was like the 14th. We actually, the government shut everything down. So I, I'm like way more with everyone, like just be be patient. And, and like, because once you, once you cancel something, you can't put the milk back in the bag. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's out there, it's gone, it's over with. So uh, everyone's sort of really waiting to hear what the rules are going to be, what the guidelines are going to be. We are on the back end. I mean, I'm making plans, um, trying to sort of predict how this is going to look, what, whether we, you know, how we structure our A and Q series. It, it's a lot different. Our amateur national qualifiers are a lot different than in the U.S., where we just need to really have a. We want to ensure that there's the best riders have the opportunity to come. So that may be just a. A voted in seating by regions, right? Like saying, Hey, here's our top 10 riders that are, we want to make sure have a spot at TransCan if they choose to go. So that's an option that's on the table right now. And then it's maybe just doing one amateur national qualifier in each region. And that's, that's what we pick it from. Um, so we have a few options, but first we want to find out when we're allowed to go back racing. Right now they're saying, Hey, at the end of May, we should be opening up events and, and ready to go do racing again, which doesn't eliminate too much, doesn't change a whole lot for us, and we can be pretty much status quo at that point. But if they push this thing to the end of, to say, June or, God forbid, July, then we really got to change the way we're going to do things and uh, work with it there. But right now, I'm just, I I have conversations with other track promoters almost weekly. Uh, We were doing some phone conferencing, but we kind of all ran out of things to talk about right now. I'm (laughs) talking to Jetworks like almost daily, just about everything where we're all just sort of like, you can create so many scenarios of what if, what if, what if, and it, all, all that has to happen is someone comes on the TV today and says, you know, we flatten the curve. We're going to go back. We're opening it. All businesses up April 25th. Right. And, and then everything's back. We've only lost two races in the season locally and nationally. So we'll see. I don't have a good answer for you right now, but I have plans. Uh, it's all based on what timelines I'm going to be handed back to me. And that's the, over the next four weeks, that's going to be everything. Right. So I guess, you know, like you say, you just the last thing you want to do is say it's canceled and then find out otherwise. So you have to kind of keep, uh, I mean, you know, a, a few weeks right. out. Like, 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 like what Justin did with the, with the series, right? So here's plan A, plan B. When we hit this timeline, well, we have to make a decision by this time. At that point, we will, you know. But I also want to point out that uh, putting the milk back in the bag, that uh, that doesn't hold water out west. They don't put uh, milk in bags out there. Oh, well, there you go. So <laughs> there you are. I never even knew that. It's a little education tape. But, yeah. but yeah, I mean, like for everyone, it's it's tough. I mean, for those who have 
to make plans like uh, what can play to when it comes to the Nationals or any of that sort of stuff. We're still small enough. Going back to our original conversation, teams can call Justin at Jetworks and say, "Hey, give me the give me the background story." Right? They, that's that's a phone call, right? Riders who are making commitments when coming from BC here, it's a phone call. Courtney Lloyd, who works with bringing lots of BC kids out there, she's texting all the time with Mel, right? Like we, everyone's talking in the background. But again, if you go and cancel an event, people hear cancellation, they don't hear reopen, right? And so um, I will personally never use the word cancel. I'll use the word postpone because we're always going to go, right? And if we had to postpone the entire 2020 season, uh, we'll be back next year, so, so to speak, right? So um, I don't see that happening. I personally see us racing, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic that uh, it'll be sooner than later. Okay, so obviously we can't uh, we can't make an announcement kind of thing, but uh, again, we'll no. just be as as we move forward. You hear the announcements on what's allowed to open, and we go from there. Yeah, and I mean that's that's how all businesses are, and uh, and uh, I know like I'm more I'm I'm anxious to get open, but I mean I know how anxious other tracks are to get open. For some tracks, this is this is their uh, time, right, to make money, uh, be open get riders on bikes and shops, all these people, everybody wants to get open as soon as possible. And once we're open, everyone wants to get back to that. What was working as fast as possible. So that's, that's what everyone can. There's no, not, no part of me wants to hold out saying, well, I know I'm going to open, but I don't want to tell anyone. The moment we know is the moment we want to, we want to announce it. And uh, I don't want to, I certainly don't want to cancel something before I have to. And that's that's what I'm not going to do. Right, right now, and I know uh, you and I spoke about this, and then I spoke with uh, Ian Hayden from Moto Park about the same thing. I mean, you make, I mean, tracks in Canada have to make their money through the summer, and then you get through the lean months through the winter, and now is when you're supposed to be making hay, as they say, right? So it's yeah, doubly yeah. Tough so years. that's that's one of the cool things. I mean, Ian Hayden, uh, who's a like he's a personal friend, and um. Derek Schuster, another personal friend. We, we talk quite a bit and we were, we were, we, I wouldn't say we give each other advice, but we share what we're doing so we can pick what works for our own facilities, right? And, you know, I may say I'm doing it this way and they may say we all kind of know how each other are doing it and we have to do it. Some things we do the same, some things we do different just because we have, uh, systems that have different, uh, different needs. And, uh, yeah, but the thing is for, so a, a facility like Motor Park and a facility like Gopher Dunes, they really uh, bank on that strong spring business. There's some races going on. They can get open. Uh, they can create memberships to their track. Uh, both Gopher and Motopark have like uh, shops that they can sell uh, bike repair, bikes, uh, gear, everything. You think of all the things that you can do on a motocross in the spring. That's their uh, what they they do, and and they can get open in March and April and really control it before. Again, a track like mine cannot open until probably the beginning of May. Um, so they have a competitive advantage over a lot of tracks that they can get open. And so that's how they create most of their business. They'll, they'll have big turnouts for their practices in the spring. They'll be able to have great races with great turnouts in the spring. And when that gets taken away, you can't get it back. It's not like, you know, we're going to have a spring in July. Right? Right. People will go back to what, what they were doing in July, uh, last year. And so, uh, this is a really tough time, and I, I just hope, like, riders, industry, everyone sees that, and they do make sure they go out there and they support those guys at races or schools or camps or whatever, because 
vehicle. And again, back to what we said before, how things have changed. There isn't a ton of places to go ride their bikes. In southwestern Ontario, uh, there's uh, two, three full-time facilities. Uh, I think only the two motor park and gopher dunes are actually full-time race facilities, which is amazing considering how much, how many people we have in this area. And uh, we need them to be strong and we need them to be there so that people do have a place to go ride bikes. Because if you don't have a good place to go ride bikes, you're not going to buy one. So yeah, that's no, for sure. important. It's very important. You know, and and we spoke too. I mean, you guys uh, up at there at Walton, you've got like so many other things going on there at the facility with all your other, you know, progression you guys have made over the years and you're tied in tightly with tourism up in that area too, right? Yeah. So for us, um, we're, we're identified by our regional tourism as a, a massive tourism driver. So the Transcan obviously brings a lot of people, uh, to this area that don't typically, uh, would not visit this area for any other reason. But yeah, we do our mud bog, which is almost as big as Transcan, and it's all people from a sort of a three-hour driving radius who come in, they buy gas, they go to groceries. So that has a huge impact. So the tourism has really been, we're fortunate in that they respect what we're doing and they recognize what we're doing and recognize the value we bring. So they've been keeping us in the loop of everything going on, and, and they we've kept them in the loop. Like going back to what you said is um, we're at the bottom of our cash cycles. We... You know, you, you make your money through the summer. We're seasonal tourism, so that uh, no different than fishing charters or wine touring, touring, and all these sort of things that are seasonal in Canada. We make our money through the spring, summer, uh, some in the fall, and that sort of bridges you through the winter. So right now you're at that low point, and uh, right. our tourism recognizes that, and they're they've been uh, good at sort of, hey, these grants and these these sort of things are coming down for tourism drivers, but Right now, nothing's been released. And like you said, we have so many things that go on here. Our sports camps, all these sort of things, unfortunately, have froze up because nobody knows what's going on. So they aren't, you know, they aren't going to purchase a week's camp here if they don't think the camp's going to go. So, again, this is why we're real careful on whether we're saying we're canceling something because right now we want to make sure if we can go, uh, nobody has any, um, they know that we're going to deliberate. All right. Okay. No. Okay. Well, um, you know, moving on to something a little bit different here too. Now the last night, I have to be honest, I didn't actually watch it yet, but uh, you're involved with this, uh, the new inside X thing. The Jetworks guys have put together the uh, live Wednesday night shows. How's, uh, yep. how has that been coming together? And uh, what's your involvement there? I know your name is one of the three, three guys. <laughs> yeah. So we're kind of juggling because again, once again, uh, uh, Everyone at Jetworks is taking what's going on incredibly serious. And it's so two things have happened. One, they recognize there's a real need for people to hear about Moto, stay connected with Moto, have that community about Moto stay together. So uh, that was kind of the what what spurred them on to do the show. Now, um, we can't get together because we're we're under uh, you gotta have a distance and, and take this uh what's going on real serious, so staying apart. So Last night they uh, they really tried to use um, Skype and, and and bringing people into a video conference. I wasn't on last night. I'm going to be on in the future, and I think this thing may evolve into something bigger, like you see with Race Day Live and all that sort of stuff, where they create a show that uh, sort of gives you a behind the scenes, some different looks at how things are, and uh, it's kind of cool. I like it. I mean, it's it's one of those things. I I applaud anyone right now because it's super easy to sit and not know what to do and not move and they're taking an opportunity to say, hey, we're going to take advantage of what we got. 
and and try and give people some content. So it's it's cool. Right. Well, that's the same with uh, you know direct motocross, for example. I mean, obviously, yeah. uh, it's about the racers, right? I mean, back when we were Racer X yeah. Canada, it's always been that about uh, whether there's racing, which is obviously a huge part of the deal. But there are still yeah. the families, the riders, the behind-the-scenes stories, and all that kind of stuff. That's uh, yeah. So for this, me, this podcast to, probably wouldn't happen unless, could, but because of the situation, it, it gives us an opportunity to sit and talk. Yeah. So I mean, we've got there will always be content. I mean, uh, we got great storytellers like yourself there to uh, lean on for. Uh, man, hey, speaking of which, that's a, here's a segue. How about uh, we've talked about the Transcan? Um, I I always say things like there's I had three guys that I put in a category. You. My friend down south, Brendan down in Palm Coast, and Jeff McConkey. You always, who passed away, obviously, but uh, yeah, always, yeah. I don't know. I just enjoy the stories. You guys always have funny little things to say. I just, uh, three guys that I really enjoy chatting with. But um, do you, I know there's one A story from the Transcan. I don't know what, if you want to give anybody a bit of a, uh, a story, a little story time here, but uh, would you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, might as well. We're all sitting around. So I, I love my one story and I, is, uh, Toby Knowles. The Toby Knowles. The Toby Knowles yes. story. So Toby Knowles, uh, for those who don't know, was Toby Knowles is the dad of Spencer Knowles <laughs> and uh, Summer Knowles, who are both great racers. And uh, Toby was bringing them out to do amateur stuff here. Toby loved and still loves to this day having a, having himself a good time, right? And so we were actually doing uh, a little uh, radio podcast show on the State Bow Tower. There was myself. I think Ryan Gold was up there. Uh, Jeff Williams, who used to be OGO. Uh, we were all up there, and one of our strict rules, anyone comes to the Transcan knows, hey, you, you can't rip around on pit bikes. Otherwise, it's chaos here, right? So we don't allow pit bikes. And back then, everyone was walking. There wasn't any golf carts, so no pit bikes. So we're sitting up on top of the tower. It's about 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> and uh, I had had a couple run-ins with Toby because he likes to push the envelope of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable at events. So I've already had a bit of a, a run-in with Toby. We're friends, but... It was just a lot. And um, uh, this this pit bike pulls into the pits, like 20 feet from me where I'm doing my, my podcast, and it's Toby. So I look down, I go, Toby, I've told you to park that pit bike so many times. I said, just turn it off, walk away from it, I'll deal with it. You're done. Like, no more. I'm done with you, right? <laughs> and he kind of looked at me, smiled, and flipped me to the bird. And I went from, like, I just went, I just blacked out. I just went mental, right? So I'm like, I'm out of here with this podcast. I'm going to get Toby is what I'm going to do. So I was so angry. So I thought, I'm going to get down. I'm going to go and confront him and just say, I'm, I'm sick of the pit bike and I'm going to take it home. Well, Toby's having a great time. He's, he's, uh, he takes off tearing around the pits. So I spend the next half an hour chasing Toby. And I'm telling you, like, he lifted that bike through fences. He was, he crashed a bunch of times. And the whole time I probably, you know, I probably burned through about 5,000 calories running after this guy. So we run all over the place. I'm asking people, I'm like, did you see a pit bike? And people would point me down different roads. And this is when Transcan was all on the sort of the west side. So it was really tightly packed. And it was just like some kind of crazy uh, car cop chase. So anyways, I found out where his trailer was. And he was parked over on the far side. And he happened to be parked next to other friends of his, the Wilsons of Dean Wilson, Andy Wilson. That whole, uh, that whole group who was just chilled out doing nothing. They were having a great night. And I went over to Toby's trailer and found it. I put a, took a big piece of duct tape and I put it right across Toby's door. And I said, Toby, when I find you, you're leaving. 
And I kept, went around the side of the trailer. By this time, it's like 10 o'clock at night. I've been doing this all night. And I get down and I talking to Andy Wilson, who's sitting around the fire with Dean. And I said, uh, I explained the story. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I, I can't believe I can't. I've been chasing. And they go, we did see him go by, you know, totally. I said, so I told the entire story, chasing him and going through fences and crashing, getting up, running, like the whole deal. And uh, Andy Wilson's just in stitches having a beer, and he's loving this story, right? And if you ever sit and have a story with Andy Wilson, he just kind of keeps peeling pieces out from you, right? <laughs> and uh, so I just get the story done, sitting at this campfire. I'm about to get up and go, and as I stand up, I see this guy with no shirt, covered in mud, come around the end of his Toby's trailer. And he comes down to the fire, and he sits down in the one lawn chair that I, next to where I was sitting. And he goes to everyone, he goes, you got to hear the story of tonight. So I plop myself right back down. It's a little dark, so Toby's not picking up and who's sitting next to him. So he goes and tells the entire story from the moment he flipped me off to the moment he was running. He told about the big crash he had and how he picked the bike up and bump started to get away from me. And everybody's in stitches. And Toby's loving this story. And he tells that he actually tells the story better than I did, right? <laughs> and when he gets done the story, he goes, can you believe that? And he slaps me on the back. And he's like, can you believe that? And I looked at Toby and he saw my face for the first time. And I said, Toby, I got to tell you something I can't believe. I chased a man around these pits all night. And all I wanted to do was catch him. And at the end of the night, when I was about to get up, he came and he sat down in a chair next to me and told me the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> and Toby literally just looked at me and I said, Toby, in the morning, you got to be gone. You know that. He goes, I know that. He goes, do I ever come back? And I said, I probably shouldn't. And he, I've never seen Toby at Walton since then. I've seen him lots of times. And we ha we have a chuckle at that story, and every time I see the Wilsons, they have a big chuckle at that story. But the night he sat there and told that story, Dean Wilson, that was like last year. Uh, Dean wrote as an amateur at Walton, and it's just a funny. Uh, looking back, it's a funny story, but that night I was so mad. Oh, I'd had enough. I couldn't take it anymore. Oh, that's that's a good one. I was I was I was kind of hoping that was where that story time was going to go. I knew uh, <laughs> I've heard that story before, and it is it's just a classic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a good one. And then there's lots of, I mean, I don't need to get into more, but it's always fun with the crazy stuff that happens here. And, uh, it's just like anytime anyone spends a week in a field, as like Galdi put it to me last year. And like we always say, Walton's like baggage. You, you can't wait to get there and you can't wait to leave. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brett. Well, uh, hey, man, I think, hey, I got it. Oh, actually, you know what? Let's get, to, let's ask you this. Let's say we were to start racing like normal, pro racing, mm -hmm. I'm talking here, motocross. Let's, yep. uh, Let's put you on the spot. What are your uh, give us your top three predictions? Two fifties, four fifty pros, MX. <sighs> I know on the so, spot. Uh, I'm I'm a believer in uh, Phil Phil Nicoletti. I feel is going to be really tough to beat this year, right across the board. I love like any guy. It's funny like I'm, guys who come out of New York do get up here. Whether it's like Bobby K, Paul Carpenter. You know, like those guys who come up here and and usually they take one year to get it. And then the next year, they're really, really good. And that's the same. Uh, I thought Bill was awesome this year, but I feel like he also didn't really buy into it at the beginning. And by the end of it, he bought into it. And now he's going to be bought into it. And he knows that if he wins a couple of championships, he's going to be good. So I think he's going to be really, really good in the 450. I think Dylan Wright's going to be good in the 450. He's He's a big kid and he can ride. And he's on a good program, and I would be – I'm going to put him up there, and then I'm going to say – I don't even really know everyone who is going to be riding uh, this year, but 
I like the fact that Medaglia is back in the 450 class. So there's my top three. Uh, Nicoletti, Wright, Medaglia, Medaglia in third in the 450 class. And then in the uh, 250, it's going to be pretty tough to beat a healthy Jeff Pettis. It's going to be awesome. Uh, it's such a such a good good guy, and uh, he didn't get to show what he was fully capable of last year. I think he, you know he was he was he had the the ability to to beat Dylan last year, and I think when he moves up to the 450, he has the ability to, to be a front runner in that class. So I think. Uh, I think Dylan's going to be really good. I think Tanner Ward's going to be really good. I know Tanner struggled a little bit last year with the bikes, uh, just for whatever reason. I mean, they're great bikes, so uh, it just wasn't gelling with him. So uh, I know the program he's on uh, right now down there. And then um, I don't know. I don't even know. Uh, I'd love to see just some sort of uh, new kids step up and, and do good in, the, in that class. But, I mean, maybe a Marco Canella. Uh, can get in there. That'd be awesome to see him. I thought he was good two years ago, and he was already in the cusp making that jump. And now, last year wasn't quite the year he had. And if he gets in shape, that kid can run so fast. He's consistent and smooth. He just last year he was consistent and smooth back in seventh and eighth place, right? So uh, if he gets in shape, maybe he can show up and get a third. All right. Now uh, I don't want to. I know I put you on the spot for all this, but in the four fifties, you uh, didn't mention Cole Thompson. So. Oh. We're talking motocross, and I know in my head I was actually thinking about that. And that Cole is like an unknown. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, so here's the thing with Cole: if he gets a fifth this year overall, it wouldn't surprise me. If he wins a championship, it wouldn't surprise me. He he has that ability, right? And um, how he shows up is going to dictate a lot. I think um, he's as talented as anyone in the country. Um, but if he shows up with it, I don't know if he has that. I I just I don't know. I mean, I just it's such an unknown with uh, Cole and uh, uh, what what he brings to it. I mean, he is obviously incredibly fast, incredibly talented. Um, but uh, and, and you get him on the right track, and I I mean here at Walton, there's I I would almost go and say if he was if he's regardless where he is in the series, if he shows up healthy at Walton. I'll, I'll, I'll pick him to win Walton in t- this year, right? Like that's the kind of rider he is. Um, so I don't know if he comes in and he feels good and healthy, things can go. If he's not feeling it and not healthy, uh, yeah, it's not going to go. <laughs> Remember that uh, intermediate year when he, uh, him and Richard Gray, boy, that was uh, that was some serious. Really, one king of Walton here, and it was unbelievable. Where he had Donk as his mechanic. I mean, he just. He was on another level. I think he was battling with uh, Metcalf that year, and he was amazing. Uh, there was a couple years at Gopher Dunes when he, the guy is feeling it. He, he, he's like he. The thing with Cole on outdoors is he's not going to put himself in a position to. Um, he's not going to just. How do I say this? I, I don't feel like if, if he's not feeling it, he isn't going to push through that that thing and risk anything, right? And um, where I see a Nicoletti. Sometimes a Mendaglia, sometimes a Dylan Wright. They're they're going to take a few more chances maybe than he would. And uh, I think his mentality pays off better indoors, and their mentality probably pays off a little better outdoors. Right. Yeah, he's also such a smooth rider. It's hard to tell when he is hanging yeah. it out. <laughs> True, right? But I mean, when you talk to him, he's like, you, you'll hear him like in his comments. Yeah, I'm I'm just not going to risk getting hurt for this, right? right? 
Well, can and, I also, and in the 250 class, you didn't mention uh, Renslin. I mean, <laughs> Renslin? Yeah. Uh, Marshall yeah, Welton? No. Dakota Alex? Yeah. Just, I'm just throwing names out there. Yeah, yeah. No, I was thinking about Renslin, too. I was trying to stay Canadian on that one, to be honest uh, with gotcha. you. <laughs> but, I mean, again, um, I honestly think, like, going back to that, Marco Canella is like, like, there's some guys out there with some massive talent that just need to partner that up with some massive training and a bit of confidence. And things change quickly when those things, when you have confidence, conditioning, uh, they already have the speed. It, it's, people will be like, well, where'd that come from? Well, it came from a little bit of training and, and, and some confidence in what they could do, right? And so, uh, yeah, Reslin's a good one out there. There's lots of great riders. I mean, I think there's five or six really, really great riders, so you're always going to miss someone, but no. Uh, I hey, and, and, you uh, said, you said three. I know, I, I know, I know. I, I also, you mentioned, uh, Jess Pettis, and I just thought, uh, interesting no, side note here. It's week 15 for our Friday update tomorrow, and that's Jess Pettis. Today, as we speak right now, he is on the bike for the first time since injuring his ACL at uh, Montreal. So today is the day. Yeah, and he has been training. And um, I just think with Jess, he's, he's at a different mental place than everyone else, right? Like he does, he, this is supposed to be his 450 year too. Like they were talking originally, you'd ride 250s last year and bump up to 450 this year was kind of, I think, like penciled in plan. And he was also probably planning on doing some supercross. So, I can just see Pettis, my, my, honestly, Pettis now has, he is going to have a window to get in shape and he's going to show up, uh, confident and wanting to prove something and carry some momentum. And I could also see him wanting to be able to say, Hey, I'm going to go down to the U.S. There's seven supercrosses that he thought he was going to miss out on. I'm sure he's getting on that bike thinking, if I put together a good motocross series, I could probably go down to the U.S. and, Hit those supercrosses. It may not be a lost season for him. Right, right. Yeah, he's uh he's staying down in Tallahassee at his uh, sister Caitlin's, and Caitlin's obviously married to Jesse Wentland. And he yep. says he says Jesse still uh, hauls, and he may uh, make an appearance up here. You know, I'm thinking somewhere in the east if, uh, if that happens, that'd be kind of cool to see. See little Jesse yeah. Wentland back. Yeah, there's there's tons of guys, and uh, hey, who knows? Like, would Joey Crown show up? There's a lot of a lot of guys out there that can really still go fast and. And that's the beauty of Canadian Moto. Like, uh, you know, lots of guys just kind of like come out of the woodwork to, and then surprise people. So, right. good. All right, Brett. Well, uh, anything else we need to talk about here? That was uh, that was great story time. Good information on, uh, I mean, Transcan wise. It's, um, you know, we just kind of have to wait till as these dates pass. I know that um, Jetworks is going to come out with theirs on May 1st. They want to kind of make a bit more of a decision on what they're going to do for. Yeah. East, West, yep. all that kind of stuff, motocross. So yeah, yeah. So I, I, my, my last comments are like just a thank you to everyone who's signed up for our events, signed up at by membership at other tracks and all those sort of things. Because uh, I don't know if everyone appreciates how how important that is to keeping these tracks open and keeping these businesses going, and uh, just the little things that people do like that. Like uh, just again, like. I know I talked to the guys at Gopher and someone came in and bought, or didn't come in, but they bought a membership online and how much that one membership meant to them now, right? And so, uh, if you're someone out there, Moto, and you can support a track or shop or anything, these tracks are going to get open. We're going to race. And, uh, yeah, the sooner you can, we can get behind everyone, the, you can make sure it's a great season. Hey, 
have you uh, picked a musical guest uh, for the trans camp? Uh, no, but I'm sure they'll be wearing a cowboy hat if we do. <laughs> okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> All right, stick to the stick to the winning formula, I guess. Right? That's right. There's no liabilities with country music. Remember that, Bill. I don't. I don't need to have any more Toby issues. <laughs> All right, Brett. Well, hey, man, thank you very much for your time there. Um, yeah, good luck with everything there. Hopefully, like you say, we get rolling. Stay safe with you and your family. And yeah, uh, well. yeah buddy, really appreciate your time. And uh, we'll. Is that it? Uh, we'll talk to you soon, I guess. Yes, you will. It's been awesome. And uh, again, thanks for everything uh, Direct does for us. It's awesome every year when I see you camped in my backyard and uh, <laughs> the coverage you give all these riders and all the effort. It, it means a lot to everyone. It means a lot to my, myself. And uh, thanks for doing this. All right, man. Well, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, go uh, go sit in the corner and stare at a wall. Will do. <laughs> Bye-bye. See you, Brett. <laughs>